Hello from Cybrary, and welcome to the show. If you've been enjoying the Cybrary podcast or 401 Access Denied, then make sure to like, follow, and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. We'd love to hear from you. Join the discussion by leaving us a comment or review on your platform of choice or emailing us at podcast at cybrary.it. From all of us at Cybrary, thank you and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to the Cybrary podcast. I'm your host, Will Carlson, Senior Director of Content here at Cybrary, and I'm have the a privilege today to be joined not only by a, a regular member of the podcast crew here, Matt Mullins, our adversary emulator, our senior security researcher, but also a new face on the podcast today because I didn't want you all to get tired of Matt. Candidly, I don't know how you could, but we're going to spice it up a little bit. Um, and we're joined today uh, by Chris Daywalt. And both of these gentlemen have been really instrumental in working on the threat actor campaigns here at Cybrary, which is really about how do we dig into the MITRE tech framework from the lens of how an adversary might really show up in your environment. And so Matt sits on the adversary emulation or the red team side of this. And Chris anchors us and produces the lion's share of a lot of the content here um, on the defensive side of things. But Chris, I'm going to stop talking and get out of the way of the people that they really showed up to listen to today, which is you and Matt. But Chris, if you give us a little bit of an introduction about kind of yourself and, and the part that you play here uh, with Cyber. Sure. Uh, so. As Will mentioned, my name is Chris. I help Cyberry by developing content uh, so far just for the Threat Actor campaign courses. I've been around a little while. Um, I think I started my career in 2002 or 2003. So long ago, I forget at this point. Um, with <laughs> the DoD Cybercrime Center. And my background, if you think of it like a pie chart, it's about a third incident response, a third teaching incident response. A third, other forms of defensive security operations with a little bit of a side hobby of risk assessment. And the last, yeah, maybe a little sliver in there of general business stuff. But that's pretty much how it's gone down for the past two decades. Nice. Two decades, Some it doesn't cool. seem possible. It seems like a long time. <laughs> <laughs> There's gray in here. I don't know if you can see that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, that's great. Thank you so much, Chris. We're happy to have you on the show and we're happy to have you as part uh, of, you know, that greater body of work for the threat editor campaigns. It's been really fun to have you. And I know um, it's, it's been exciting to have some additional faces for kind of Matt to spar with as well. It is fun. These are really fun to build. They're fun to work on. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're interesting exploratory projects that include, you know, a little R and D, a little playing around with data and course development. It's a nice mix. No, that's great. Um, and I know, um, you know, I guess, Matt, we can segue to you a little bit and you can tell us a little bit about who the latest Threat Editor campaign, uh, what adversary were we emulating? Why was that, uh, you know, who we chose? Uh, what's interesting about this this particular adversary? Kind of what, what verticals do they impact, you know, just for the audience? Um, what do they need to know about, uh, you know, who shows up as the adversary in this campaign? Yeah, so um, this one was a, a, a continuation of the previous one that we did where we wanted to aim for somebody more advanced, right? It's in the name, so we kind of wanted to, to continue on that. But um, APT41, Double Dragon, right? Um, there was a lot of conversation prior to this about emulating somebody who is advanced, is doing something unique in the space that makes for an interesting course. Um, you know, Chris and I talked extensively about this and, you know, the things that they have been doing on the wire um, that's been in the news and in taking that approach to thoughtfully emulate that in a way that if we did revisit some of the TTPs, um, adding some innovation to it. And that was something that, you know, uh, Chris has been a big 
uh, proponent of, especially with the previous campaign that we did, uh, 29, and that we want to make sure that we do things in a way that emulates them in real life enough for the learners to get a true detection experience. So Chris has been a pro at that, as well as, you know, an interesting wrinkle. So uh, for example, we've already done um, in some capacity, you know, ransomware and attacks that use this kind of encryption to, hey, you've been you've been ransomed, pay us the money, but we, we took a different approach for it in this campaign and built something um, custom from scratch that's different than the previous one, as well as some other uh, TTPs that were specifically tailored for this to emulate them. Because uh, correctly if I'm wrong, Chris, but this group primarily focuses on, um, you know, uh, getting information, um, intellectual properties, research, things like that. And so when they get in, they will target and triangulate to those aspects, right? And target entities that have valuable IP or research or things like that, but then also uh, use some of these other attacks like the ransomware to burn things to the ground on their way out. Yeah. And they, they may even, two targets may have two completely different objectives. One target may be an espionage target. that's a state-sponsored group. and But they also do their own work to monetize, which is pretty rare for groups that do state-sponsored work, especially out of China. Um, you know, if, they're, if you're state-sponsored, you you know, I guess you're often funded um, yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason. You know, these folks make their own money in addition to in addition to their day job. So I imagine the operators over at Double Dragon don't get a whole lot of sleep. <laughs> yeah, as a cost center, I'm sure their leadership loves them. You know, it's like, hey, man, <laughs> they pay for themselves, literally. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting, right? So APT um, 41 Double Dragon is a Chinese, uh, largely attributed. I, I think we, the community has relatively high certainty, um, as certain as you can be, that it's a state-sponsored, yeah. a Chinese state-sponsored threat actor group. And, and you know, the thing I think the team's calling out here is that, you know, uh, if you're looking for the theft of intellectual property or things of that ilk, your your typical mo, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, is to come in, kind of be quiet, live off the land as much as you can, don't get detected, and just siphon information away. A really long game here. Yep. But something interesting and why we themed this and, you know, Double Dragon, why they're called that and why we picked this one as well is that they do that. And as Chris mentioned, in addition to that, they do some of the more pure cybercrime aspects of this as well. Yeah. So it's like they're, they're not happy being state sponsored. They need to have a revenue stream, too. So they'll do some of the more traditional uh, things as well, which is an interesting way for a state sponsored group uh, to show up. Uh, so did I did I catch the high points and summarize that well? Yeah, yeah. There's definitely um, there's definitely an interesting niche in that it's not uh, like, for example, with Profit Spider, solely dedicated to initial access brokerage, right, and things like that. So it, it kind of adds an interesting uh, flexibility in their operators too, kind of like what you were saying, what Chris was saying. It gives some 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 cadence and some some. I mean, I guess it really speaks to the capability because typically with groups like this, like Chris was saying, and like what you were saying, they'll have one thing. They'll do that one thing really well, and like that's what they specialize and focus on. So. It's definitely an interesting niche. I think it might aid in job retention as well. Like if I'm an operator, if I'm a low level operator, like I don't want to deploy ransomware all day, every day. Yeah. They probably get as bored with that as I do with responding to ransomware. <laughs> like, give me, mix it up here. Like, can I, can I go steal some data? Can I have a different objective at least yeah. on like on espionage Tuesdays? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, it is sweet. interesting, That's right? We've talked about Tuesday. that too. So these these fin <laughs> groups that we've covered before previously, it's like they don't care. They're happy to be a little bit noisier, right? I mean, they don't definitely want to get caught before they accomplish their objective on goal. But if they're a little noisy mm. getting to that point, and if they're really noisy in the end, they're okay with that as long as you ultimately pay. Yep. Um, I, I can imagine 
you know, I know Matt, you have, we've even talked about it too, like um, how you like uh, the, the longer game, the longer con, the big setup, the anxiety of that, the, I hope this fish works. Cause if not, we just blew all this research time. And uh, to your yeah. point, Chris, I imagine that it is a little bit more of a, um, you know, I think we probably would like not to characterize it this way, but it is a cat and mouse game on both sides. Right. And I think, um, you know, when you're going against an adversary, you want to win. Um, so sometimes a challenge is, is really nice, uh, be it for the adversaries looking at us uh, as the targets or us looking at them as the people we're wanting to keep out. Um, I, I'm certain that it does keep it a little bit more interesting and keeps the team the, the team over at Double Dragon uh, sharp, yeah. uh, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder, Chris, in this, so what with this adversary was particularly interesting to you from a, a telemetry or a detections perspective? Was there anything that you found to be particularly troubling, um, hard or, or difficult to to detect um, in this campaign? Mm. Well, you know, we focused on some really high, not high, uh, we focused on some TTPs that you're going to see frequently not just with Double Dragon, but with other adversaries. So one of my favorite things about this course was more in line of a couple of TTPs that we need people to understand how to find and deal with. Not so much for the difficulty, it's just that they're, they're common tripping points. So we do um, system binary proxy execution. I think I mentioned this in one of the videos. Um, like two years ago, that was, I think, one of the, num like the number two TTP that Red Canary listed in their threat annual threat report all that means is you know the adversary's code is run in a process that started from a normal authorized system binary so we have hh.exe in this one um could be mishta or run dll32 um so you know if you run a if an adversary in this case we have a, a spearfish which involves a chm attachment and when that gets opened you know, hh.exe is opening the spearfish attachment and i've many times seen sock t1 analysts look at an alert say eh, that's a legitimate windows binary this must be this behavioral anomaly must be a false positive i can move on to my next ticket and you know sock analysts this is the way it is in the industry they're they're incentivized to get through x number of tickets yep. every hour mm -hmm. um and just because a particular alert, especially behavioral anomalies, things that aren't like this is exactly malware, especially anomalies, just because they show up with, as or associated with an executable or process you believe is normal on a Windows system doesn't mean it's not malicious activity going on. Um, it's, it's hard to detect only in the sense that um, you have to understand that that occurs Right. If we've got SOC T1 analysts that are going into the job and they don't know that happens, then they're not looking at the alert from the proper angle. You can write detections on these. Um, at least the, the trivial aspects of the behavior can be detected fairly easily. And one of the actually one of the things that we did in this tack that we haven't in previous tacks is for some for most of the lessons, I think we wanted to highlight at least one open sourced detection rule that the participants could go find, download, and apply in their environment. And that might also work for the lab. So we want to say, hey, not only are we showing you how to explore the telemetry, but here are some rules you can go get that will help you detect this. So um, you know, we pointed to the Sigma rule set, I think, for the vast majority of this tag. And that's a, a, a repository of Sigma rules. Sigma is like a, a 
a signature format for SIM rules and they come with a converter and you can run the converter and it'll convert the Sigma rule to like a, a Splunk query or an elastic query. And, you know, for, for, for system binary proxy execution, you could just say, Hey, you know, show me anytime I've got it, you know, hh.exe again, which we, we use in this course, um, with a child process of cnd.exe or PowerShell, um, things like that. So it's not exceptionally difficult to detect, but it's super important. It's very common across many adversaries, advanced and not. Um, and I'd like it when we have a chance to reinforce something that, that that's that critical. No, that's great. It's, it's funny you say that, Chris. I was having a conversation with a, the head of a red team just the other day, and Matt, you'll, you'll probably uh, identify with this. And I asked him, I said, what's the one thing that the blue team does that frustrates you more than anything else? And in my mind, I was thinking about this from a, makes your job difficult, you know, right? As an as a red teamer, what does a blue team do that makes your life a pain? Um, but he took the question a totally different way. And it was a really interesting response. And he said, what frustrates me that the blue team does more than anything else is when they write rules to detect me. Yeah. And I was like, well, what do you mean by that? And he's like, they write a rule that specifically detects the one thing that I did and they don't abstract away and write a rule for the thing I was trying to accomplish or the way in which I was doing it. And Chris, it makes me think of your comment just now. Like, can you rule the initial alert? Sure. You're probably going to have a bunch of false positives. You're probably going to have a bunch of SOC analysts going, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem, not a problem. It, you've got to take a tick down from that yeah. um, to really yeah. see what's going on to your point. Like, what is that child process? I, I wonder, Chris, in your experience, um, and I, I would love for you to say, oh, it never happens, Will. <laughs> <laughs> but in your experience, how often have you encountered, you know, socks or teams or companies that just aren't taking that additional click down to kind of enrich that initial alert? And, and how challenging is it for them to get there? You know, it depends on what they have available. And there's a wide range of, of, of organizations that are instrumented differently. Apologies if you hear the uh, loud truck outside my house. I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> um, so sometimes they're pretty, like, it, like a, let's take CrowdStrike for an example, right? CrowdStrike, when you have an alert, it, it provides you with a nice visual representation of the process tree. You can navigate it around on the GUI and and that kind of easy presentation incentivizes SOC analysts, even T1s, to just go ahead and explore that. And they'll take a look around and see what's going on. It doesn't necessarily mean that they um, get what they're seeing. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, and then other environments where, you know, uh, an analyst might get like an AV alert and, and they don't have a process-related telemetry, which unfortunately still occurs, you know, that they're a little more hampered and they're making judgments without as much information. Um, it's, it's, it's more when, you know, the concerning thing with system binary proxy execution is when an analyst does look and misinterprets more so than not looks at all. Um, and, you know, and I'm glad you brought up the, the, the idea of behavior and more generic detections. Cause that's one of the things we do in the TAC is like, there were no AV alerts in this TAC. We just focused on behavior and why that behavior would or would not be suspicious. Yeah. trying to provide more generic tools for, for, for participants to get the ability to see what's happening regardless of who the adversary is. So do you think that's a difference of fundamentally understanding that, you know, I'll, I'll use this analogy that I, I, I use fairly often. It's like when you're 
teacher makes you work the long division problem manually at first. So you really understand how to do it before you get the calculator. So I understand that there are tools that will do a lot of this for you, but we really want you to understand why the tool works the way that it does, what you need to go looking for, why that behavior is, is a risky behavior. So that that's, a, that that's more transferable knowledge. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. And, and, you know, um, I think, I wasn't there for the original decision to use Sysmon. I think maybe Owen built the first course, but I think that was a great decision because Sysmon provides that kind of, that's what we use in the course to generate telemetry. And we're going to expand that in the future, but that provides that kind of generic telemetry that involves those kind of events that are going to occur on every system in every intrusion or just about every intrusion, right? We've got process creation, process termination, file creation, file deletion, DNS queries, network connections, the kind of basics that are always there. And, you, you know, if we if we help people learn the ability to identify anomalies or malicious activity in those kind of ubiquitous data sources, um, that's going to help them across a variety of tool sets, whatever they might have. Because, you know, plenty of EDR tool sets generate those kind of, that kind of data. Or they can just go download Sysmon and run it in their own environment for free. Yep. Um, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Share your work. Do the long division. <laughs> Hopefully your tool picks some of this stuff up for you. So you don't have to do everything we do in the course. But if if the, if there's a miss, you have the experience and the tool and the and the telemetry and the, the know-how for what to look for to maybe find find bad even if your own tool set didn't pick it up. Yeah, if you're fortunate enough to have an easy button in your environment, that's great. But at least you'll yeah. know when you push that easy button, what actually it's doing for you. So you'll know that it's working, number one. And number two, you'll have a whole new appreciation for what that easy button does for you <laughs> yeah. Yeah. as an analyst. I wonder, flipping the script here a little bit, Matt. So from your perspective, what was interesting to you about Double Dragon as an adversary to emulate? Were there any of the TTPs in the campaign that you found particularly challenging? And if so, why? Yeah, overall, I mean, it was a lot of the stuff kind of like what, what Chris was hitting on earlier. Like we've seen these before. They're pretty tried and true things, right? Um, so, you know, some of the stuff that we went after, like the the um, the proxying of the execution using the known binaries, um, that's that was pretty, pretty standard issue stuff for most of the red team operations that I've been on, like a great case in point. I was just thinking about this as Chris was talking about the importance of having that kind of like inquisitive nature for SOC analysts, especially tier one, is that, I mean, our classic go-to, which spoiler alert, if there's anybody listening from our previous teams and stuff like that, who are on the blue team side, is that we would always aim for Chrome. Everybody has Chrome, they got a thousand tabs, you know, like, and so we'd set our parent process ID and respond to, to Chrome, knowing that it was just going to be lost in the sauce. Chrome um, uses a it, lot of RAM anyway, right? So Yeah, yeah, and it eats RAM for breakfast. Um, what's so, a couple more yeah. gigs? Yeah. yeah, what's a couple more gigs? Why not, man? But like to Chris's point, it's not nearly as in-depth and, and cool and high speed as like, you know, MS HTML application proxying or something like that. But the kind of the case in point is that we would hide and live in those processes so that the parent process was explored, the actual process that it was in when it was a Chrome instance running. And then if we did do some sort of fork and run or we did some sort of execution within the context of that process, from initial first glance, it would be like, oh, it's just Chrome eating a smoked ton of RAM doing Chrome things, whatever. You know, maybe they installed some squirrely extension, but that's a different conversation, right? Um, 
So some of those things were pretty standard. Um, the one I think that was the most fun to really delve into was revisiting the the ransomware side of the house and rewriting some of that stuff because um, I uh, I've, I've used really basic stuff before in some of our operations, but it was always very uh, damage adverse, I guess is the way you could say it, right? So we want you to drop a text file and then like drop a file that that's encrypted, right? And it's just a you know a file blob or whatever, and it's like one kilobyte and it's got a funky name. But, you know, Chris, wanting something more like realistic and more tangible, we, we revisited the drawing board and, you know, I got a chance to to write something that's, <laughs> heaven forbid, it's not the fastest thing that was out there, but it got the job done, right? And that it would go through and it would iterate through the files, encrypt them, delete them, transfer the file information out and do a bunch of other really cool stuff that you would see in the real world. So. Um, getting to be able to sharpen the, the claws or the fangs a little bit uh, with something that, you know, normally we back away from. It's kind of like, I guess, in the sense of you're doing a, a red team and someone's like, we want you to DDoS us. Like no one ever asks for that, right? No <laughs> one's like, just just blow our stuff up. Like, you know, drop real ransomware and encrypt all of our files. Like you just don't normally get that as a request. Usually it's something that's in a very specific containerized approach. So being able to do that for me was personally a lot of fun. Um, and, uh, it was, it was, it was cool to visit that challenge because there was, you know, obviously we wanted to do it in a particular way that was reflective of, you know, what actual advert, the actual adversary was going to do, but also in a way that I hadn't really crossed that line of, okay, we're actually going to delete their files and encrypt them and then drop them and then exfiltrate them and do all of these things in one, um, execution flow. So let's make it work realistically and let's make it work within the context of the attack flow as an attacker would do it. So. For me, that was probably the most the most interesting one, the most fun uh, revisiting that because previously when we had done it for ransomware for financial gain for that campaign, it was a little bit more cheeky, um, and uh, we had a little bit of more of a, a basic level of it. So this was a little bit more uh, closer to the adversary, I guess you could say. Yes, it's the the meme I'm sure many have seen running around. It's like nothing is out of scope for the adversary, right? So it was kind of fun. what yeah. I'm hearing you say, Matt, is that it was it was fun to actually get to be the adversary and not necessarily be be defanged in all of this. And you know, I, I get it. No no criticism thrown to to uh, you know cybersecurity organizations across the globe. Like they've got a, a fundamental business objective to continue to accomplish. And far be it for um, some. Uh, ill-intended ransomware developed by an in-house adversary emulator to get out of hand because the net impact is still just just as bad no matter how ill-informed. But um, we didn't have those yeah. constraints in the lab, did we? No, we, we really didn't. And one thing I'll throw out there too is, is case in point for most of the adversary emulation or the red team operations that we've been on where we've simulated to some degree an adversary, when we get to a point like that typically, and I'm sure Chris, you've probably seen this in your, your field work, we would normally just have like almost, we call them like breaker points or break points, kind of like when you're debugging something. So we get in and we're worried about the adversary getting into a financial system and then being able to create a ACH transfer envelope. Take the ACH transfer envelope, forge it as a user, send it to an account that, that we have created as an adversary and just steal the money, right? Very realistic concern for a lot of businesses out there, especially in fintech. And so some of the stuff we would do is we would get up to the toe line of that and then we'd pop that breaker and then we would tabletop it. Just like with the ransomware stuff, we would toe the line up to that, pop the breaker, we would deploy this you know, dummy canary file and then we'd turn it more of a purple operation or something like that. Um, and like you said, well, being able to really kind of flex beyond that, um, 
that tabletop or that, that role play of, hey, what would happen if we did X? What would that look like? What would our detection response be? What would, how would the whole defer process go down? Um, you know, in the event that we're, we're assumed breach, we've got to the objective and we've done the thing, right? So, so yeah, just, um, it was, it was, again, in my, in my opinion, I thought it was really, really fun exercise to be able to take that beyond that break point, because again, it's not something we ever usually get to do. Sorry. I was just thinking about that from the, the way that we typically do a, fl a flow for these things from a red team operation specifically, because sometimes you get into some really sensitive stuff or you get into something really critical, as I'm sure Chris has probably seen as well, and you can't blow it up. And here we could. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, Chris, from your perspective, how what value did it add for you? Do you think that it maybe adds for learners to actually get to see that really happen in a, a more true to life way and, and, and as opposed to kind of that? We'll get up to the break point that Matt mentioned. I mean, obviously, you, you you do think it was beneficial because I know you personally advocated for that more, even more realistic approach. But I'm I'm curious how that showed up for you and what benefit you think that is for people that take this campaign. Yeah, I mean, the closer, the more we can emulate the way an action might transpire, the the better it will help someone who goes through the content um, with their pattern recognition in the field later. Um, so you, you know, you can, you can tell someone how something works and then you can show them how it works and then they can go in and see it for themselves. And the closer we can get that to reality, the better, um, you know, there's always still going to be some barriers like the, 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 the most difficult thing to emulate is, you know, in a real ransomware attack that that's a multi-target attack, you're going to have like a million files encrypted across multiple systems yeah. all in a short period of time. Um, <laughs> But what can we, you know, what could we do short of that? And it's we could we could have multiple files in a directory and subdirectories encrypted. We can have the ransom note dropped at the right time, um, and we can show some additional characteristics that might go along with that. And and I think we showed enough that a participant would be able to see the basics of what ransomware impact would look like in a particular location, um, and. You know, I hope that they never have to see that. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally, you want to pick it up before, before you're like, hey, why do all these files have this weird file extension on my yeah. system? <laughs> um, but you know, if, if you see it, we showed you what it looks like. Yeah, one thing too I'll throw out there is the um, the master boot record attacks. <laughs> yeah. That was also a fun one that um, you know we've always talked about, where there's been like simple POCs, but I've never ever been in a situation where like, all right blow it up <laughs> rico kaboom kaboom like that's basically <laughs> what chris told me and i was like all right kaboom uh that was always fun and when we i think as we were working through it correct me if i'm wrong chris but like didn't we have one of the systems reboot based off of something that was going on as a host and when it rebooted it just got to that part where it was actually launching the partition and it was just like Meh. and we're like what the hell happened oh the master boot record attack that hey. worked we did, we did a lot of resets in this one. We did um, a lot of resets. <laughs> All praise to VMware. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Saved us a lot of nights. That's right. Having, having good snapshots, good backups. We, we proved it for ourselves uh, in this particular range. I wonder, Matt, that's an interesting one, right? So master boot record is the part of the hard disk that gets read when a computer first starts up. So if you can get something injected there, um, 
organizations don't love that, right? Because it's a good way to hose an entire fleet. Um, so yes. dig into that one and explain that one a little bit more uh, for me and why that one's so nasty and why that one's one that typically doesn't get emulated in the space, but why we were able to do it. Yeah. So from like a high level, like you said, you basically have, you know, this, the boot process and, and, and that partition is where it's like, Hey, you know, or that section of the disc is like, Hey, this is what you should start with. Let's launch things. Right. And um, basically what that attack was able to do was from the context that the, the, the offensive party, the APT group, you know, was able to, to get a hold of within the system is they were able to overwrite, you know, with raw, um, with raw byte calls, the actual space that made that request. And you can do a lot of really interesting stuff. And I was doing research on it, like someone had put Tetris. <laughs> so like you could overwrite the master boot records so when it boots up, they can just play Tetris and that's it. Um, another one was the Nyan cat, the little Pop-Tart cat. Um, and then uh, one of the basic ones that's out there that's pretty much probably ubiquitous with a lot of these types of campaigns is uh, um, and power tools within the Mayhem module. There's one that you can overwrite the master boot record based off of a, a remote access Trojan from another APT group. And um, so there's a lot of flexibility. And obviously with a lot of adversaries, and keep me honest with this one, Chris, is that they'll go in, they'll overwrite this part. And that's where, you know, a portion of the ransom will occur or the ransom will occur for some of these emu uh, emulated adversaries that were not emulated, but the actual adversaries. And once they do that, like your disk is basically you, you boot up and it's just you know, the DOS, like the disk operating system screens, like, hey, sorry, you're having a bad day, but uh, this is a reality now. Yeah, I mean, we'll see, we'll see MBR for destructive purposes, which is what you're talking about. And, you know, some, some MBR based malware, more, more if there's no intent for the target to recover, that's just pure destruction. <laughs> um, now, you will see disks encrypted if you're talking about like full disk access being gone like when you have you know organizations they'll have they'll be running vmware or some other virtualization solution they'll have their virtual disks stored on a particular storage array or or mm -hmm. some kind of you know network accessible storage that you know the adversaries on some workstation workstation over here oh look here's this file share what's in this file share a bunch of vmdks and you know adversaries will encrypt whole disks that way uh, whole virtual disks so that's a little bit beyond MBR, but that's that's where I see full disks being impacted during a ransomware attack versus a pure something that's purely destructive. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is worth noting that we didn't actually show the MBR attack in this course. So we tried to give it a go, but we couldn't get it such that there was yeah. um, telemetry and data where we could demonstrate that working. Um, so we were trying to get some MBR malware working, but it is not demoed. Yeah, that's an interesting one, right, Chris? So um, by the point, by the time you get to that point, it's probably pretty obvious that it's happened. <laughs> so your detection is, is that my computer boots and all I can do is play Tetris. Oops. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think it is an interesting one as we're talking about, you know, how kind of MITRE attack shows up and, and leaning into MITRE attack as you see an adversary progress, right? So if all you detect is the objective on goal, then... Uh, bad day for you it's really all the things that come before that so knowing that you know uh, in a, a slash and burn campaign really hosing your mbr may be the objective on goal but it's the trick for the defensive side is to catch all of the telltale signs up until that point so even in this campaign we didn't get the mbr done 
we did do a lot of the things that would ultimately be telltale signs up until that particular point of that potentially being objective on goal. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in any, we're all, you know, in the tech courses, we, one of the objectives is for us to show the full progress from beginning to end, from initial access to act on objectives and walk the participant through the whole thing. It's like, you know, we're doing that. We're doing the half day bus tour of the city and you're going to get out at each stop in the attack chain and, and you're going to look at it and you're gonna see what it looks like. Um, and obviously the earlier in the attack process that you are successful at, at detection and implementing countermeasures, the better off for your organization, um, for anyone. Um, nonetheless, it is important to, to know what's happening when you do see the action on objectives, because you still have to fire off your incident response. It's just, your day is going to be harder. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. I know I, I, I hear oftentimes in the industry that, you know, the adversaries only have to win once and the defenders have to win every day. And personally, I've gotten to the point where I've heard it enough that I chafe at that a little bit, Chris, because the reality to me is the adversary has to do everything right to win that one time. And the defenders, if architected telemetry set up well, if they're, you know, really on their game, you've got in number of steps along the way to detect that adversary before they accomplish those objectives on goals. So, um, you know, I do think to your to your point, it's really important that we uh, that people understand that there are telltale signs all along the way. Again, because if all you're detecting is objective on goal, you're going to have a really rough day, and it's going to look like a totally different world. But the adversary has got to get all the way through and up to that point for them to accomplish their goals. So, I think to me, at least, curious, Chris, your your opinion on this, like. For people to say that the adversaries have to win once and the defenders have to win over and over and over again, it seems a little bit to me like um, defenders kind of throwing their hands up in the air and going, yeah, well, it's going to happen. Well, there's a lot of that's like that's the corollary to that is if, a, if an advanced threat really wants to get in in our environment, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, then why do we have a security <laughs> budget at all? Um, but so that our, a lot too. yeah, our, our objective is to reduce risk and risk being a probability associated with negative impact, likelihood of attack, likelihood of attack success, level of impact, those combined into risk. Our objective is to reduce that risk. We don't reduce it to zero. We don't want it to be 100. Uh, we try to find that balance that's best for the organization. And to your point, you know, there's there's specific stages in an attack, yet like MITRE breaks TTPs up into these individual tactics, but you can think of them in, in broad chunks, right? Where it's effective. First, the adversary is trying to gain initial access. Well, if we can prevent that, that's optimal. No access, great. You know, let's block that spear phishing email before it comes in. Let's train our users not to open the link or click on the link or open the attachment. Then we have an opportunity possibly to prevent exploitation and establishment of persistence. We do that, great. Again, we have, we're preventing the attacker from gaining that, that foothold. But then we have another opportunity, right? They've got to go from there to local network discovery and lateral movement, typically. In this class, we have one victim machine. The previous tech, we have multiple. In your environment, if an advanced adversary comes after you, they're going to come after multiple multiple machines, right? You have another opportunity to prevent them from going from a single host intrusion to a multi-host or domain-wide intrusion. Um, and that's another opportunity to, to prevent any real damage prior to action on objectives. So there's, there's, there's multiple opportunities in that chain of events and we have a lot of ways to deal with those. 
yeah, instrumentation yeah, at each point, detection tactics at each point, skills that our SOC analysts need at each point to recognize what's happening. Yeah, and another thing I was going to throw in there too is um, one other th good point that you're you're kind of building towards too, Chris, is that there, with the the lateral movement, the enumer enumeration, the initial access, there's also the elevation of privilege either within the network, within the cloud environment, with, on the local machine, and there's a lot of really great detection opportunities there. You know, like Honey tokens, Honey accounts, things like that. I mean, there's so many. To your point, Will, like there, there's so many. If it's if it's well thought out and people kind of follow the paradigm that Chris has been teaching through these courses. It's really easy to, to put enough, uh, you know, deadfall traps for like red teamers or for adversaries that, I mean, the quicker that you know that they're, they're in the environment to the point that he's making, the quicker you can handle the, the shutting down of the infrastructure. Because the, the worst instances that I've been on where we've been on a red team operation, it's been, we've gotten in, we've established a good foothold. Maybe we sprayed the fish across the network. We've got a few low level users. Then we've got some deep hooks. We've been able to, we're able to establish some sort of you know good persistence mechanism. We're able to escalate and then laterally move and spread out so that our internal infrastructure has resilience. And that's when it becomes a problem because it's like you take down you know you know you sheep dip like two or three of the hosts and you're like okay we got them and then it's like how did you guys come back? We kicked you out of the network. Well, what happened was dot dot dot. So you know there's just so many good opportunities for detection like Chris was saying and and. Um, the one that always sticks out to my mind that's always like risky business is, is the, the privesk, especially for like local admin, because there's so many smoking guns and there's so many smoking guns potentially within the network. You know, like that's why with a lot of the stuff that we've done, I'll just say this is the last thing I'll say, like um, when it comes to getting domain admin, like a lot of the operations later on in my career, we're like, we don't want to go anywhere near domain admin because that's like, uh, what's that movie, Entrapment, with like the laser scene where Catherine Zeta-Jones is trying to like climb through the wires or like Ocean's Eleven. It's like that, like, why would we even mess with that when we could get on like GMF and then like dump all the secrets from like the devs using that? Or like, you know, maybe there's a cloud account that allows us, you know, from an Azure tenancy perspective to get into a local machine or VM that has everything we want. We just want our objective, right? So there's so many good detection opportunities, like Chris was saying, and if they're done thoughtfully, everything is just like a, what's that, uh, that scene from Airplane where he's like sweating and it's just running down his face and he's like, <laughs> That's what it feels like sometimes. That's all I was going to throw in. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, and attackers do the same thing over and over again because it works. Like if I had, yes. I can't count that number of times I've seen Mimikatz in an environment. I can't count like back in the day, maybe uh, the number of times I've seen PS exec use for lateral movement. I know some of that stuff blends in, but it's like, come on, yeah, they do. You know, we have opportunities because they do the same stuff over and over again often. Um, yeah. I mean, advanced adversaries like the one we're emulating here will, will evolve their tactics or like skilled red teamers. Um, but also there's a lot of basics we can cover that will help us not be the low hanging fruit for commodity financial crime. Yeah. And, and one thing, the last, another thing I just want to, cause we, this is a good point is the easier it is for like a red team or adversary. And, and Chris, keep me honest from your perspective that you've seen in this and the environments that you've worked in, but from our perspective, like on the red team side and the offensive security side, the easier it is for us to do those steps, the faster we can move and the more confident the team becomes that the internal environment is poorly implemented. So there's actually like a reverse diminishing return for ease of exploitation. Like if we know we can just throw like a default cobalt strike generated payload 
and we can give you the most like low tier, just like fires and missiles, button press fishing campaign. And, and then it blows up and like everyone's local admin. I mean, we know it's like winter, winter chicken dinner. And we're literally just waiting, you know, to, to sneak into Santa Claus's, uh, you know, studio with the elves and like grab the presents and get out like the Grinch. And it makes it a lot easier for us to have high confidence that we won't be detected, that we will get away with the crown jewels and we can move really quick. And I've seen some red team operations that they're like, hey, you got six months and like a month and a half of really hard, sophisticated work. We were okay. And I've seen other ones where it's like, hey, you've got, you know, three to six months and then like less than a week. They're like, got him, got him. And then we're done. So it, it it, it lends itself to, to the point that you were making earlier about the, the opportunities and like um, the acceleration inversely affects the red team and uh, adversaries, I'd say. Are those the situations where you're like, oh, we're slaving away on the keyboard? Really, you just got like the movie minimized on your screen. You got <laughs> yeah. it into the target network in like one week and you've got three more months. You're like, oh, so working so hard here, boss. <laughs> Yeah, they got yeah, pizza ordered sick. in for the remainder of the campaign. It's like, ah, yeah. why are there all these Xboxes in the office? No yeah. reason. We're just storing them. <laughs> Quick, they're doing a screen share. Run hacker typer and just like run your hand across the keyboard four or five times. So they think you're doing something gnarly. Got him, coach. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you both for joining us today to talk through the latest Threat Enter campaign here at Cybrary. And, you know, more importantly than, than for how this shows up for Cybrary, it really is about how we get this knowledge in the hands of people that are going to be running into these things each and every day. And to Chris and Matt's points both, we make it as realistic as possible because there are some things that we can emulate in a lab environment. You know, I, I would say that there are some pros and cons to being in a lab environment. We really do everything that we can to lean into the pros of the lab environment, right? So launching some more realistic ransomware is one of those pros that we can lean into um, just to help people really have as, as realistic an encounter uh, with, with these TTPs and these types of threat actor groups uh, as well. Um, we're going to continue to pour some steam behind this particular uh, body of work and emulating adversaries and how they show up. I know Chris has some interesting ideas more to come in the future about how we really dive deeper into some of these TTPs that are common practice. So you know, it is important to see them, I think, as a, a chain of pearls uh, along the attack, but it's also interesting for some of these really, really common TTPs that we dive deep in how all of the different ways that those could show up for you in number of detections and our telemetry sources. So uh, I, I know Chris has some exciting ideas about what's to come uh, for that body of work as well, along with a number of other things. But uh, expect to see more for Threat Actor campaigns and how that shows up. Thank you both for joining us today, and uh, we'll see you again on the next episode. Cheers. Thank you both. Cybrary, the premier cybersecurity skill development platform, is empowering individuals and teams to secure the future of technology. See why 3 million people have already signed up when you visit www.cybrary.it.